inviting Dr. Frank Turek to the stage. Dr. Frank Turek leads Cross-Examined Ministries. He's the president of that wonderful ministry, crossexamined.org. He's the author of a number of books. He's a tremendous resource to the church and also to people who are uh, doubting their faith, people who have all different kinds of questions about their faith. He comes from Charlotte, North Carolina, and joined us from that far away, came to Kearney, Nebraska. Isn't that awesome? He's a very, very well-known apologist or defender of the Christian faith, and we are greatly honored to have him here today. Would you please give a very warm, Carney E. Free welcome to Dr. Frank Turk. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, brother. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I want to go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, kill the Americans. As Monsor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Monsor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying on the roof will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two Navy SEAL colleagues lying on the roof receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush called Monsor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsors High School in Garden Grove, California, built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident that the SEALs wear, their insignia, dominates the 50-yard line. Last January 2019, San Diego, California, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet. 
Zumwalt class. This is Monsor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anybody sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, many people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it's got miracles in it. We don't believe in miracles anymore, do we? I mean, hasn't science somehow disproven miracles? And wasn't this written down by religious people? Don't we know that religious people tend to embellish things? They made this up. How can we even trust this story? How can we know it's true? I actually think it's quite easy to show that it's true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative to show that it's true. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. I need sound for this. This is a cool sound. There you go. That is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah, that is actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday nights on DirecTV Channel 378. Of course, here in the Central Time Zone, it'd be 8 p.m. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku. You guys know what Roku is? If you've got Roku, look it up at NRB TV for National Religious Broadcasters. Uh, that's on Roku. We're on radio every Saturday morning, and uh, that station, there's a bunch of stations around the country. If it's not on here, you can listen to it because it's podcasted. It's uh, also on our website, it's on iTunes, and what we do is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, why are these the four questions? And these are the four questions that we're going to cover. We're not going to cover them all today, we don't have time, we're just going to cover point one today, but tomorrow night at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, uh, we're going to go through all of these questions. When I say we, me and Tim Stratton over here from Free Thinking Ministries, we're going to go through, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament true? So if you want to see that, come tomorrow night. What room is it in? Copeland Hall, 142, 7 p.m. tomorrow. And it's open to the public so anyone can come. Uh, now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Well, first question, does truth exist? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if there's no truth. And you hear people saying, you know, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative, there is no truth, right? You've heard these claims. If there is no truth, Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there is no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? Nothing can be true. In fact, why would you go to school if there was no truth? I mean, think about that. So we're going to deal with that question first. Does truth exist? We're going to deal with that today. Does God exist? Tomorrow night, we're going to give you three arguments that God exists. And these arguments, while they're mentioned in the Bible, you don't need the Bible to know them. You can show that God exists without reference to the Bible at all, and tomorrow night we'll do that. Are miracles possible? 
Obviously, Christianity can't be true if miracles are not possible. But tomorrow night, we hope to show you that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are admitting the data for this miracle. We'll see that tomorrow night. And then we're going to get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if the documents are reliable enough to, just to let us know if one particular fact is true from the ancient world. It doesn't have to be inerrant. We just want to see if one particular event took place. What would that event be? The resurrection, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week because it's false if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, I know some of you are looking at that going, wait a minute, Frank, what about the Old Testament? You believe the Old Testament's true? Well, look, if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Why? Who's in the New Testament that could authenticate the Old Testament? Jesus, yes. If you're ever in Sunday school, you don't know the answer, just say, Jesus, you'll probably be right. It's Jesus, Pat. That's right. If Jesus really is God, as the New Testament documents claim he is, now that's a big if, but if he really is God, whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, so if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Now, we can't even cover it all tomorrow night, so if you want the entire argument, the book's available on the book table as well as a 12-part DVD series that goes through all this in great detail. In fact, people use it in homeschools, Sunday schools, small groups. You can get workbooks to go with it. And then there's another book out there called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed that when atheists are arguing there is no God, they actually have to steal aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. In effect, atheists have to sit in God's lap to slap his face now, this entire PowerPoint presentation, I want to send you for free. I can't show it all to you. In fact, your notes in your uh, handout today, I probably can't even cover all the notes, but they're all in the PowerPoint presentation. All you need to do is text the word evidence, no quotes, just the word evidence, to 44222. Text the word evidence to 44222. We'll send you this PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format and some other free stuff. Uh, and uh, if you do want to get a book or a DVD on the book table back there, I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know, I got three sons, so they need some help. I need some help. Actually, they're a little bit older now. Uh, many years ago, I was in the Navy, which, by the way, stands for Never Again Volunteer Yourself, <laughs> which is why when my sons were interested in the military, I advised them to go Air Force. And they did. The oldest two are in the Air Force. In fact, the oldest is an intelligence officer down in San Angelo, Texas. In fact, he's reading your email right now. And he's about to marry another intelligence officer, intelligence officer, so their kids are going to be Einsteins. Uh, the middle son, he's married. He's in Enid, Oklahoma. And uh, he was a, a KC-10 pilot. Now he's flying T-1s. You guys know what a KC-10 is? KC-10 is a big plane that refuels other planes in flight. You know, you've seen the planes flying along. they got the boom coming out of the back, and other planes, as they're flying, will come up and get gas. So what we say about our middle son, Spencer, is that every day he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. <laughs> and he gets paid for it. This is every man's dream. A 
If I got paid to pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. Right? The third son is not in the military, but he is out of the house. So my wife and I, we live uh, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, my wife and I are now empty nesters. Yeah, it took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change the locks. Do we have any empty nesters in here? Yeah, you notice how clean the house stays when they're gone, right? When, when, when they're gone, you've got to clean the house what, once every two hours, or once, once every two weeks, but when they're there, every two hours, all right? Now, some of you may be asking, Frank, you, you're, you're talking about evidence. Aren't we supposed to just have faith? The answer is no. In fact, the Bible even tells you not to just have faith. For example, Peter, who was writing during a period of suffering, says this. He says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, all right? But we're supposed to have a reason why we believe what we believe. Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. We're supposed to know why we believe what we believe. And unfortunately, when young people go off to college, and this is one of the reasons that I go to college campuses and Tim Stratton does as well, is because 75% of young people who are brought up in the church walk away from the church once they go to college. And the number one reason they do, intellectually, they don't know why Christianity is true. Because we haven't given them any reasons to believe it's true. We just say, go have faith. And then they go off to college and their professors try and say everything opposite to what the pastor has said. And the kids think, you know, my parents are paying thousands of dollars for me to go hear this professor tell me something that my pastor said wasn't true. Who am I going to believe, my pastor or this guy they're paying a lot of money to? Hmm. So we have to give reasons why we believe what we believe. And I know Pastor Adrian does. Many pastors don't. You don't hear evidence in church, but we need to start hearing it. So we're going to start right now, and uh, we're just going to do today point one, does truth exist, and then tomorrow night we'll go through the rest of this. You guys ready to go? All right, now whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. You can't handle That's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Hey, this got to be louder back there. Let's try that again. You ready? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right. Let's try that again. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now, that felt better, didn't it? Well, there's a, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. And before we get into that, let's define what we mean by truth. This is on your handout here. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. If I say, here we are in Kearney, Nebraska, that would be true. If I said, here we are in Charlotte, North Carolina, that wouldn't be true. Right? Truth is telling it like it is. Truth is telling it like it is. These are good definitions of truth. All right? And there's a problem in our culture today. A lot of people try and claim that truth doesn't exist. And what I want to show you here is an easy way of pointing out why they're wrong. In fact, this thinking skill we're going to talk about today is so important that I submit to you that if you get used to using it, 
half of what you need to know in order to defend the Christian faith you'll already know. Why? Because this thinking skill will help you discover what is false. And discovering what is false is important. Why? Because if you start living by false principles, eventually you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt. And you want to save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. So this thinking skill is so simple that I didn't even know it when I was 33 years old and already had a master's degree. I'll <laughs> show you what a dimwit I was. I had to learn this in seminary. And it's simple. Let me just show it to you. Here's, how you, here, here's this thinking skill I'm talking about. And the thinking skill is used when somebody says something like this. If somebody says there is no truth, you should ask that person a question, what should the question be? Yeah, if somebody says there's no truth, you want to ask the question, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Can everybody see that this is a self-defeating statement? What's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. It says it's true that there's no truth. We just got done telling me there was no truth. A self-defeating statement violates the law of non-contradiction, which is also in your notes. The law of non-contradiction says opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. It can't be true that there's no truth. God can't exist and not exist at the same time and in the same sense. You can't be both incarnate and not incarnate at the same time and in the same sense. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead. It can't be both. You with me? It's one or the other. So what is this thinking skill? What you want to do is you want to turn the claim on itself. So if somebody says something, you turn the claim on itself. Somebody says there is no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you say, is that true? Now in the book, we call this tactic of turning the claim on itself the roadrunner tactic. And you can get the book to figure out why, but it just reminds us of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner, for those of you who are old enough to know what I'm talking about. The kids are going, who? Anyway. And uh, it's so important to discover what is false. So let's do a few more of these, okay? If somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you say, is that true? How about if somebody says all truth is relative? If you turn the claim on itself, what question are you going to ask back? Is that a relative truth? No, you're claiming it's absolutely true. All truth is relative. Can you see the problem there? How about if somebody says there are no absolutes? You're going to say, is that an absolute? Or you might say, are you absolutely sure? Right? See, that's an absolute saying there are no absolutes. It's got to be false. How about if somebody says you can't know anything? If you turn the claim on itself, what would you say to somebody who says you can't know anything? How do you know that you can't know? How do you know that's true if you can't know anything? You're defeating yourself. How about if somebody says it's true for you but not for me? You've probably heard that one, right? It's true. Oh, you know, Christianity may be true for you, but Buddhism is true for me. What do you say to someone who says that? Turn the claim on itself. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true, because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say? You just used English to say it. Or it'd be like me saying my parents had no kids that lived. Or my brother is an only child. 
right? These are all self-defeating statements. And when somebody says it's true for you but not for me, it's a self-defeating statement. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, sure, go try that with a police officer. Next time he pulls you over and he says, you were going 90. Simply look back at him and go, ha, that's true for you but not for me. You know, then speed away. See what he does. No, if you were going 90, that's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to you at that time. In fact, all truth is objective. All truth is absolute. That's another note in your outline there. All truth is objective. All truth is absolute. If it's true you were going 90, that's just true, regardless of whether or not you believe in it or anybody believes in it. I go to a lot of churches. I normally ask people, is Christianity true? Most people will say yes, and then I ask them why. You know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not Christianity is true? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Well, think about it this way. Do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You see, because when the Bible's talking about faith, there are two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we call apologetics. Doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It means we're giving evidence. That's what Tim does at Free Thinking Ministries. We're giving evidence for why something's true. But all the belief that in the world, all the evidence in the world, won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go to belief in. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called, you guys are sharp this morning. He said even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you know the demons know God exists better than we do? They're in the spiritual realm. They know he exists. Yet they don't trust in him. Why? They don't want to trust in him. And the same is true in our world. We can know that God exists and still not have our moral transgressions forgiven. Because there's a difference between belief that and belief in. And we know this in relationships. For example, when I first met my wife 34 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind, belief in. After you know that it's true, trust in it. In fact, here's the word we ought to be using, trust, because that's literally what it means in the Greek. Trust. Yesterday, when I flew here from Charlotte, North Carolina, I had evidence that the pilots were trained, that ATC was going to get us here safely, that the, the plane was maintained well, but I didn't really trust in that until I got on the plane. That's the difference between belief that and belief in. And when the Bible's talking about faith, most of the time it's talking about belief in. After you know that Jesus is the Savior, trust in Him. If you don't want to trust in Him, you don't have to. God will not force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want Him now, you're not going to want Him in eternity. How about this? You hear this a lot. There's no truth in anything but science. Probably heard that claim, right? If you turn the claim on itself, 
What would you say to somebody who says there's no truth in anything but science? Or it's sometimes it's stated this way, all truth comes from science. Turn the claim on itself. What would you say to them? Does that truth... This is the interactive portion of the program. Does that truth come from science? No, that's a philosophical claim. You can't go in the laboratory and prove that. In fact, you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. There's a chapter in the Stealing from God book on science. Here's the title of the chapter. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Science doesn't say a word. It's scientists that say things. And sometimes they say things based on their pre-existing atheism. You say, oh, does, doesn't the Bible and science uh, contradict? No. Science doesn't say anything. It's scientists that sometimes interpret the data in such a way as to contradict what the Bible says. That's not science and the Bible contradicting. That's some interpretations of the scientific data and some interpretations of the biblical data that contradict. But they don't contradict if they're both true. You have to just figure out what's the right interpretation. And by the way, think about this. Most of what's really important in life doesn't come from science, okay? Honey, do you love me? I don't know. Let's run an experiment. No! How about this? You hear this a lot, too. You ought not judge. Somebody says you ought not judge. You turn the claim on itself. What, you, what would you say to him? Yeah. Why are you judging me for judging? You see, because you ought not judge is a judgment. You say, wait a minute, Frank. Didn't Jesus say don't judge? Nope. He never said it. Sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Okay, I know this is going to sound weird, but it's true. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew was writing his gospel, he said, here's chapter 7, verse 1? No. When were the chapter and verse divisions put in there? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is a good thing because it's a really long series of books. It'd be hard to find your way through it without numbers, right? The problem is... We tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can take that little section out and make it say whatever we want. You can't do that. In fact, what did Jesus say after he said, judge not? He said, judge not. If you keep reading, judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, which is a judgment, by the way, take the log out of your own eye first. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem, fix it, then go help your brother. But it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Why? Because number one, it's a judgment itself. And number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made a hundred judgments this morning just getting over here. And some of you are going, did I make the right judgment? Why did I even come here, right? <laughs> Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. What judgments do they make? There's no God. Bible's wrong. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There are no objective moral values. There is no ultimate meaning to life. Have a nice day. No. Atheists make judgments all the time. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? I will say this about Jesus, though. He did save a very stern rebuke 
for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? What was their job? What did they do? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. Some of them were members of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. They were politicians. They helped run Israel. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus creates a whip, and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. Sweet and gentle, Jesus did it. Yes. And then in John chapter 8, a little bit later, he's arguing with these same Pharisees, and he gets to the point in the conversation where he says, your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. Can you imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you stop and you go, your father is the devil. Never do that with a sibling, by the way. Okay, But Jesus did that. And then in, in Matthew 23, he's again talking to these same Pharisees and he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you snakes. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this. Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No. I came to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. He was not Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? Well, look, he was kind most of the time, but he certainly didn't go around saying this sermon brought to you by the letter R. No, Jesus was tough. Don't buy into the wimpified version of Jesus in our culture. He was not skipping through the daisy fields. In fact, why did they kill him? Why do you think Jesus was killed? Was he killed for skipping around saying, love your neighbor? Does that get you killed? Love your neighbor. You must die. No, that, that doesn't get you killed. What gets you killed is, number one, claiming to be God, because that's blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. And number two, speaking truth to power, like he did to the temple authorities. They didn't like that. That's why they wanted to put him out of business because they knew if he stayed in business, they were going to be out of business. Do you realize that representatives of the Sanhedrin, maybe even Caiaphas himself, saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead? You read John chapter 11, and you, they, he talks about this. In John chapter 12, Caiaphas, the high priest, is saying, it's better than one man die than all of Israel go down. Better than one innocent man die. They had evidence he was the Messiah, but they didn't want it. So don't buy into this idea you can't make judgments. You're to make judgments without being judgmental. Somebody put it this way. Evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. You know, we're no better than, if you're a Christian, you're no better than anybody else without Christ. We're all fallen without Christ. By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. 
You ever notice that when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, if you say to your best friend, I really love you, you're such a wonderful person, I wish I could be like you. Do you think your friend's going to say, who do you think you are? You ought not judge. No, they're not going to say that. See, I've noticed that people don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get upset with you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. For you military people in here, you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you tell somebody something that's true and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. We don't want our evil deeds exposed. In fact, I submit to you that probably everybody in this room in the past week has barked at somebody you love because they told you the truth. Maybe it was this morning getting over here because you didn't want to hear it even though you know it was true. Now, we could spend more time on this, but we don't have time. We'll have to do it tomorrow night. Um, but let me point this out. Can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? Can everyone see that? If you can see the self-defeating nature of this statement and the other statements, like all truth is relative, there are no absolutes, you can't know anything, it's true for you but not for me, all truth comes from science and you ought not judge. If you can see that those statements shoot themselves, you're on your way to defending the Christian faith and avoiding painful consequences. Because if you live by false consequences, ultimately it's going to catch up with you. All right? So there is truth out there. And here's, let's summarize the whole thing. This is in the bottom of your notes here. The truth about truth. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. You can believe everything's true, but everything can't be true. You want to believe the earth is flat? Go right ahead. That's not going to make it flat. And objective truth can't be denied without being affirmed. Suppose somebody says there are no objective truths. What question should you ask them? Turn the claim on itself. Say, is that an objective truth? If they say yes, they've just defeated their statement. If they say no, it's just my subjective opinion, you ought to say, well, why should I believe it then? It's not really true. It's just your opinion. You can't get away from objective truth. Actually, you can temporarily. How do you do it? Well, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, what you do is you suppress the truth because you want to go your own way. In fact, tomorrow night at Kearney at 7 p.m., we'll have a microphone set up for Q&A, and normally atheists will show up, and we'll have Q&A toward the end of the event. And if an atheist gets up to the microphone and expresses any hostility at all, I'll normally ask this question. And the question goes like this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no! No? Wait. I thought you claimed to be reasonable. I thought you claimed to be rational. I asked you if something were true, would you believe it? And you say no? How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. And they think God is going to get in the way of their happiness. In fact, many of us, we're not on a truth quest. We're on a happiness quest. We're just going to believe whatever we think is going to make us happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term, doing a lot of fun but ultimately destructive things, yet over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in here who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves, right? 
I'm going to do it my way. No, you want to get true contentment? You've got to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. You can suppress it. You can run from it. But ultimately, everyone's going to bow to the truth, either on this side of eternity or after it. By the way, if you're not a Christian in here, thank you for coming, but ask yourself that question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If you hesitate or the answer is no, the problem isn't here, the problem's here. You might not want it to be true. Why would you not want it to be true? It's the greatest story ever told. It'll bring you the most benefits ever. Now, tomorrow we're going to go through the rest of this, but I want to point out one thing. Tonight at 6 p.m. at Spirit of Life, Spirit of Life Church, if you want to see what Tim Stratton and his team are going to start doing to bring more evidence to the Kearney area and all around the world, then come to this event tonight at 6 p.m. We're just having dessert. You're going to hear some testimonies about some of the work Tim has done, and you're going to hear a vision from Tim, and I'm going to give a short talk, and you have an opportunity to contribute if you want. You don't have to. But we want to we take this kind of evidence all around Kearney and beyond. And Tim is doing great work at Free Thinking Ministry, so what we want to do is, is give him more resources to do more. So that's tonight at 6 p.m. And then tomorrow night at 7 p.m., we're at the university. Again, don't forget, text the word evidence to 44222. So what does this all mean? What this means is someone actually did die for you, and you'll see more evidence of this tomorrow. Now, obviously, it wasn't Michael Monsor, as noble as what he had done. Michael Monsor died for his friends. Jesus actually died for his enemies. Who are his enemies? We are, because we're separated from him. But he just didn't die. He also rose again to prove he was God and to let you and me know that one day we'll rise again as well. As the band comes, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us evidence, that you told us to always have a, a reason for the hope that we have, and you've given us reasons. Help us to have these reasons so we can interact with other people who have questions and bring them into your glorious kingdom. We thank you for the work being done here at Carney E. Free. We pray that people will take any evidence they can take out into the streets to build your kingdom. We ask these things because your son came to earth to die for us, and out of gratitude for him, we're going to follow what he has told us to do. In Christ's name, amen.